Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you live from the 11FS office at wonderful WeWork in London. We're also coming to you live via Periscope and YouTube via the magic of the web. I'm your host, Simon Taylor. Uh, today on the show, we also have my esteemed 11FS colleague, David Breer. Hello. And our guest this week, returning once again, is Sarah Kachansky from Business Insider. Good evening. And making her Fintech Insider News debut, we have the wonderful Chloe James from Sky News and RFI. Hello. You get two two places to work. That's, I do. that's just greedy. <laughs> oh, and before we get on with the news, we've got some news of our own. Uh, very quietly, we've run, launched a community, and it's running in stealth mode at the moment, but we can trust you guys. You won't say anything, right? Uh, basically, we wanted to do a sort of hacker news slash Reddit for banking and fintech. This is your place to share, discuss, comment on the news. We don't care if you're the CEO of a bank or a grad or just a, a strange person in a blue t-shirt like me. It's what you say that counts to us. So we'll be using that as our source of stories going forward um, for Fintech Insider. So this is an opportunity for you guys to get involved. And if you'd like to be involved in the alpha, uh, then get in touch with FI News at 11fs.com. Anywho, let's get on with the news. Okay, first story up. Uh, There's one here where the European Banking Authority uh, has rejected some European Commission amendments to screen scraping under PSD2. So screen scraping for the uninitiated is the idea that I give my login details to some third party that then logs in on my behalf, scrapes my details off a website almost metaphorically, and then puts them in somewhere else. And banks have been complaining for some time that that wasn't particularly secure. Uh, and I believe that the um, there are a number of quite large fintech companies that already do this, the, so the likes of Yodley and Mint.com, who kind of said, well, actually, no, we, we'd like to keep that screen scraping stuff. Uh, and it looks like the EBA who've come out and said, Nope, no screen scraping. We want APIs. We want direct controlled access into that data. Um, any thoughts on what's going on with this one, Sarah? I'm sorry. It's just I'm, they, they can see the faces I pull now, which is slightly disconcerting. <laughs> uh, I've been told I have a very expressive face. Um, so uh, this battle has been going on a very long time. This is not new to PSD2, uh, this screen scraping uh, API Whichever, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, also, there are some banks out there that use screen scraping, and there are some apps run by banks which use screen scraping, some aggregation apps. So it's not just banks versus fintechs. It's everybody it's uses it. It's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it is a complicated issue, and I kind of think there are pros and cons on both sides. I think the biggest problem here is consumer confusion. So everybody keeps going on about PSD2 is going to be brilliant and everybody's going to have access to their data and it's all going to be wonderful and we're going to save loads of money and switch our energy providers. But the biggest problem with all of this is that the average consumer has no idea where their data is or what is being done with it. And there's a lot of kind of, when you actually explain it to to consumers, um, YouGov's done a survey, this is what open banking is. This is what it requires. 90% of consumers go, I'm not doing that. I'm not giving you my data. Now, the fact that their data is probably already out there on Facebook and YouTube and wherever else it might be. That's not the point, um, is it? <laughs> no, but my point, my point is that I can see why the EBA has done it. Because if you're going to go out there and say you have to use a secure channel to access your data... Screen scraping is arguably less secure and it's less easy to put standards on. And that message is just going to confuse consumers. So if you're going to go out there and say, it's all right to hand your online banking details to these guys, but we're Barclays and we put a huge billboard up that says, don't hand your password over to your mum. Consumers are going to be like, what? Sorry, what? Where are we going? So I can see why they've they've taken it down that route. 
that's one perspective on it. There are obviously many other reasons why the EBA, the European Banking Association, may have done it this way. And the Banking Association, yes. yeah. I think there's a there's a few different bits on this, isn't there? Like, um, you know, PSD2 doesn't give you everything, right? It gives you transactional data for current accounts. It doesn't give you the ability to aggregate everything into a single they, source. They haven't even specified APIs yet. We're still back true. there at kind of like a, speci- a, a, um, a standard interface, which yeah. could be anything. I mean, Theoretically, which is which is where the confusion comes from, right? It's a standard interface, and so I'm going to give somebody access to the transactions in my bank account via a standard interface. People assume that means these wonderful APIs that um, could be magic, could be you know, magic beans for for all the because they just haven't been defined. I mean, do, do you have a view on this internationally? I think, I think they all but say it, though, right? I think they they do all but say it in the document. They're in just terms hedging. Of, they don't yeah, want to put yeah. the API yeah. in the pa- back piece when of the paper. paper was written. It wasn't a cool little acronym and people like people weren't going out but i I think the thing about about this though is that it it's sort of no you know no shit these guys are trying to stop this type of stuff Mm. happening because actually in terms of the um the ability to share the username and passwords you know banks have been prohibiting this within the terms and conditions of internet banking for forever but some of them are still doing it which is what confuses me there on that aspect so there's a hypocritical aspect on the bank side as well. is it like do as i say not as i do in this instance then to a certain degree I suspect the high street banks have that attitude on a <laughs> number fronts. of things. <laughs> well, I, I would just add in that using the word screen scraping is just going to terrify anyone, isn't it? Yeah. Really? And your consumer points there are such a good point. I mean, that's it's like scaremongering is all that I would add. Certainly in, from an Australian perspective, PSD2 pretty much still open to interpretation. I don't know how many people actually know really the ins and outs of it that's being really honest and we're certainly getting that um perception so time well, i actually ran a um a workshop with a, a group of bank executives uh, re- very very recently and actually asked them to put their hand up who had actually read the entirety of the document and there was only one person who had actually read the entirety of that document in that executive team when all of them are going to be massively impacted by the you know actually everything that's in it so that to your point chloe i, I don't think many people really do mm. you know it's the in the, the industry of, let alone your consumer yeah. side yeah. Yeah, exactly. there was actually a really funny graph that was put out this week that i i saw a bunch of people sort of getting really excited about on twitter that was the the amount of people that say apis are going to be transformational in our industry uh, as opposed to the zero that actually know what apis actually stand for which is you know it kind of feels like blockchain over and over and over again really. so i used to have a slide where i had api and i was had like um, a playful ibex um <laughs> adventure precedes invention like there's oh yeah no wow. there, was, there was some really fun ones yeah. on that slide um because application programming interface doesn't really tell you what it does but then you describe end-to-end customer journeys the ability for uh, i want to go buy a mortgage and there's a platform that can get house prices in, that can also compare quotes from solicitors, that can also uh, give me the price for a mortgage and can package all of that up. That sounds like something customers want. That is the promise. But actually what we're doing is we're getting lost in the weeds of um, what do different agendas want and how do they want to achieve it. And I don't think there's a really good technical voice because when Google or Facebook or Netflix or, or any tech company releases an API, one, they're already technically savvy. And two, they know precisely how their customers are going to use it. When a regulator says, I'm going to enforce open banking on you, they have no idea and they can't really have an idea of how customers might use it because that's up to the industry and the industry probably has other concerns right now. A, a big 
but I know we're going to go really long on this one. But a big part of me here is that banks want to shut down screen scraping because it allows the sort of disintermediation that we've sort of seen the potential with when there's actual real-time data going through from an API perspective. So shutting down screen scraping and then massively watering down what PSD2 actually is just feels like a, an obvious play to kind of actually try and almost like... Get just, out of it. <laughs> yeah, just like retain the status quo. You know? I mean, there is the... I mean, I'm sure we're going to get onto it at some point today, but there is the open banking standards, which just came out yesterday, which I have haven't tried to read. Uh, I haven't even had time to look at them yet, so I'm sure. I'm no, they're, sure they're, somebody they're in this room start. has. Yeah, um, hopefully they're a good start. So you know, there is there is depends where you are because that's obviously British only. Uh, you know, only applies to the UK. But um, it's no surprise that banks are going to try and shut down competition. That surprises nobody, really. Yeah, that surprises. No, we had it was interesting. We had James Whittle from the UK Payments Association come over to Australia and present to the banks on this PSU two last year, and you could certainly feel the nervousness in the room because our market is so similar to this market as far as sort of size, scale, number of majors. Um, so I think they were all quite nervous about that. And, and the view we hear from a lot of our US colleagues and friends is that the US banks are very much of the opinion that they'd like that open banking stuff to to stay in Europe. Thank you very much. Yeah, except they're taking the bits they like. So if you look at some of the big US banks, the Wells Fargo's and the JP Morgan's of this world, they've seen what Intuit's been doing for years, which is screen scraping a lot of it, and gone, you know, it's Intuit who, who run QuickBooks, but also Mint, um, and gone, oh, you know what? There's a cross-selling opportunity there. We'll let them in, but on our terms, with our technology, and, you know, that works for both those parties and potentially those and consumers. I'm not entirely but... sure that's a negative. Um, no, no, no. But, but sorry, my point is that they're, they're taking the bits of open banking that they like yeah. and they're using it to benefit a number of people, which is a different way of doing it. So maybe the argument is you should let it evolve organically rather than forcing it on with rules and saying you can do this, you can't do that. Innovation by regulation is uh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it, It's a fun moment. You're like, I'm cool with this if I'm doing it to somebody else, but not if they're doing it to me. That just seems, seems weird to me. But there's another open banking story next up actually yeah indeed we, thank you for moving us swiftly on david because we could go forever on this um which by the way it's it's um atom bank the, their ceo has joined the open banking initiative in the uk as the challenger bank representative uh david since you brought it up what does yeah. that mean what, are you, what, are you, what? Yeah. I sort of got lost on this one a little bit earlier on, if I'm honest with you. So I kind of went down uh, every paragraph in this made me um, sort of Google another thing and sort of uh, trundle on, if I'm honest with you. Firstly, um, the trustee of IE is Imran from uh, EY, who received an OBE re- very recently <laughs> so for... The trustee, the trustee of IE received an OBE. Yeah, I, I got through that. Yeah, I was just about to say, like... So, so IE is the Open Banking Implementation Entity. So this guy's in charge of, of that in terms of, the, I guess, the appointments and the, the sort of structure of it. Um, Imran got an OBE for services for fun, in financial services recently, which for the life of me, I kind of understand the context of or that. Was, was it financial services or was it services to fintech? Again, that like, makes it even weirder. <laughs> like surely um, there are about 100 people that have started really big companies in the UK that are massively doing that, not some guy who's running a fintech practice for a consultancy. That just seems really, really weird to me. But anyway, rabbit sort of hole number one that I went down on this one. Um, the second one is that Mark Mullen, the CEO of Atom Bank, when, you know, nothing against Atom Bank, but 
have been appointed as the representative on the open banking implementation entity. Got through that again. Well done. Mm-hmm. Um, for challenger banks. But how do they... Right. I have, I have many questions on this, which okay, you, yep. but I'm hoping you're going to answer because you've done all the Googling. One, how do they define a challenger bank? Have we got Santander in there with Monzo? Because presumably they're going to have different um, perspectives on this. I don't think this. so. I don't think Santander are in that one. No. It's probably like was founded in the last five years. Yeah. You know, like- so Metro Bank? No, no that's, old, that's older than that. Um, I'm just TSB technically, technically a challenger. Yeah, like, see, like this is yeah. very confusing to me. And secondly, my understanding of the UK open banking thing is that the nine big banks who were pushed into this by the CMA, and and as far as I understand it, they were basically told they had to do it, have to do it, and have to create these standards and have to abide by them. Everybody else is kind of like, yeah, I might do that. Might do something else. Like, you know, they have to opt into it. Thanks for your invites to the meetings, but yeah, we have something else to do. So, what 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 is he? What's he going to do? Like, I, I guess he's going to be sort of pulling together the thoughts of challenger banks uh, and actually representing that into the other banks. So he has to go to all his competitors and ask them what it is they want and how they plan to use APIs and then tell everybody else. Uh, theoretically, yeah. I think he's a good person for that, Mark Mullen. Yeah, I think he is. We've we've interviewed him. I've spent sort of quite a bit of time with him. He's had some really interesting sort of comments along the way. He's 26 years in original banking and then now challenger. Good point. What does that make? I actually agree with Simon. I think it's probably in the last five years. I, I read a quote today when I was sort of re- researching this one that he said to us, which is, you know, traditional banks fund a huge and obsolete infrastructure which was built 20 to 30 years ago. Like, he doesn't pull any punches right. Another one, which I thought was quite funny, was banking is like going to the dentist. If you want it to be painless, fast and inexpensive, as in that's what you want out of it. So he's someone who gets up, he speaks, he's not afraid to say anything. So I think that's probably why it's particularly him as opposed to maybe some of the CEOs of the other challenges. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with him being it. I just have a problem with them appointing one representative for all challenger banks. It's not that it's Mark Mullen. I, I think he's a great guy and, and I, I completely agree with you. He has some excellent ideas and he's done some wonderful things for banking in this country. But the fact that there should be one person who But he's going them. to represent all of them, right? I do think he is going to gather all of their thoughts together. That, that would be why he would be appointed. So, but, but why do Otherwise, they, do they have all of them? And the other nine get individual voices. Okay, oh, good point. Okay. So why do RBS and Barclays and, and etc. get their own voice and all the challengers have... In one, one little pile. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think that's True. an interesting question. I think it was the nature of the governance and the way it's been set out. They wanted a person to coordinate lots, potentially how many fintechs are there versus how many banks are there. Because in open banking, it's not just for challenger banks. It, potentially, you're also representing the interests of an entire industry. So therefore, to channel that through one voice was seen, I think, I don't know, as something that was potentially a useful conduit. Did other people put themselves forward for it or he was approached do we know i believe there were uh, several other people that were asked but i don't know i don't think there was a process that was followed yeah but i don't know how it was it was come through i think it i'm not sure atom is necessarily representative of challenger banks i think that's probably the the thing that i yeah. feel most sort Certainly of repulsed by this. not on the on the consumer current account side they they quite we talked about this previously they said they're not doing that until early 2018 so if a lot of this is to do with the use of your current accounts making payments through third parties data aggregation for spending they don't do that right now. Yeah. So it's it's quite vague. So I guess again, as the uh, you know more appointments are actually made on this one, and I guess the the sort of clarity around what it actually is comes forward, then we'll um, start to see a little bit more. Hopefully. Indeed. But moving us on, uh, Sarah, there's a story here in for an extra about HSBC hiring Diana Biggs to lead business model innovation. Have you read the story? <laughs> I have read the story. Um, I have to say I don't know Diana Biggs, so um, I, I, I I have no comment on her. Uh, abilities as a person to take on this role i have i have 
questions about the creation of such a role within a bank. I So I think the business model innovation is something that banks as a whole should be looking at. And if this um, lady is going to have the remit to, to push that into every area of HSBC, then that is great. That's really good. Business models really, that's like, that's how banking gets reformed. You start with business models and then you do a fancy app on the front. Like, Couldn't agree more. So, so the, the, the point, the perspective, the idea is great. I am always, always cautious of anybody. There was another story this week about Santander appointing a chief digital and innovation officer. That always makes me kind of cringe a little bit because I want, and I'm sure most banks want, I want everybody to be innovative and digital. And I want everybody to be rethinking business models. Now, if you can drive that from the top, um, which it looks like the lady who's come into Santander has done elsewhere, looks like she's done it from the top at um, Intuit, then that's great. But that is really hard. And it speaks to me, it reminds me or suggests to me of quite a legacy mindset. So we have a silo and this is our innovation silo and this is our retail silo and this is our corporate silo and this is our treasury silo. And if you can't get across those silos, then then there's not much point to the appointment. I don't know her remit and I don't know, you I, know. I always sort of think on this one, particularly like say with innovation or even like digital strategy to a certain degree, it's actually, it's this, this is almost a... Um, a big indicator that this is the beginning. These guys are kind of like the canaries in the mine to a certain degree. You know, we expect them not to change everything that they need to, but actually this is the beginning of the transformation within big organizations like this to actually make it happen. So in two years time, when this doesn't quite work out, but you know, there's 10 other people who are thinking about this or it becomes everybody's remit to make it happen, kind of similar to sort of digital innovation in like seven years ago, then I can kind of see that. You've got to start this, somewhere. Yeah, at least this was the beginning. It. I, I think but Sarah's point's an interesting one, though. I've, I've seen it work the other way around where having a, a head of innovation or a chief innovation officer just creates a turf war because can you really own innovation? Can you really own business model innovation? But I, I know Diana quite well. She used to work for Oliver Wyman. She set up microfinance institutions across Africa. She's a tr- a strong career track record of having gotten things done in very hard places to get them done. Um, and Lord knows HSBC could be the hardest <laughs> of all of those places. Um, but it, it really becomes to humility and that you don't own it, but you are the champion of it. And, uh, and You have to who, inculate it. You have to get it into all the little nooks and crannies and get everybody to start thinking about it. And I think DBS then, that, did that, as well. Um, DBS in Singapore have been really good at not... Their chief innovation officer, Neil Cross, doesn't own innovation. He simply tries to inspire others to really work with it and I think that's why they've been quite effective. And he did that in partnership with Olivia Crespin who's now gone, gone over to CIMB and doing the same. I, I'm so, I think this is a really interesting story and because RFI group works so closely with the banks there's a chief digital transformation officer at sort of every bank but I do think if it goes across the streams. I, I get what you're saying about the silos, but I think, you know, it has to come from the top. Something interesting here at Money 2020 in Copenhagen last week, I interviewed, pardon me, Josh Bottomley, who's the chief digital officer at, at um, HSBC, and he's ex-Google. Mm-hmm. I mean, this really interesting conversation about going from Google into a bank. So interesting to see HSBC, as you say, David, of all, all of the banks doing this kind of thing. And I think I mean, they will follow suit. But as you say, it has to go across the entire bank and it has to, you have to get your internal stakeholders on board. Digital transformation, they often talk about, you have to have that innovation side, but if it's not integrated with the CTO, like the technology side, tech side, it's just not going to work. It just ends in turf wars. Yeah. I've seen it go horribly wrong, but I've also seen, you know, there are examples where it's, where it's really worked. I think HSBC has been very slow off the mark as well. I don't think, you know, even if you look at their, their mobile banking apps, I think they've been relatively sort of slow on this. So maybe this is kind of the kick they need. To A signal of, of them getting it. Yeah. yeah, getting their head around it. And the fact, what's interesting to me is that she's 
business model innovation as opposed to digital officer which is, is a really, really interesting title to me and it suggests that they might have finally ah light bulb moment and, and knowing diana I, I wonder if that was her suggestion can, can you can you influence business model innovation without owning the P&L? Very good question. Well, can you can you influence it without? I mean, this is um, the Gelaboshkovich argument. Can you influence business model innovation without changing how you architect, how people are incentivized, and how you record an account internally? I knew like, Gela would have said that better than I ever could have said that. So uh, annoyingly, she is brilliant, isn't she? Um, but I got to move us on, uh, David. Uh, there's a story here in Bloomberg. Tesco Bank says uh, Chief Executive Higgins to retire next year. Yeah, this was, I guess it's a bit of a sort of a changing of the guard moment to a certain degree. So this is uh, Benny Higgins, who's been the role for 10 years now, established Tesco Bank, former sort of RBS employee, uh, and, uh, you know, really has kind of created that, um, that whole sort of culture and uh, and company is is sort of set to depart so i actually think it's quite a sad one to be honest with you because actually out of if you kind of look at all of the ceos across the uk um he's probably the one with the absolute most character uh which you know i think is a kind of a, a trait that um you know we, we probably should be instilling a little bit more in in many of the other ceos as well there's definitely a bit of authenticity there although tesco did have some hacks recently and you can sort of see why there might have been some some pressure on it and 10 years as the ceo of anything is is a pretty good tenure and th- this is a bank now uh with six million customers what he's done in those 10 years and 11 billion in deposits like actually you can you can be pretty proud of that i think indeed four thousand people employed by the company now so it, it feels like a pretty uh pretty big move i'm still over excited that they've now got contactless club cards at tesco i think that's like the biggest innovation i've seen in i've seen yeah. in years in loyalty contactless loyalty I, my brain's going to all sorts of exciting places the whole pay quick um, solution is actually really really good so um I, you know i can see them actually moving that on you know mm. very very well so do we know who's taking over not yet no there's okay. this sort of talk of whether it's going to be an internal sort of move there is a deputy ceo or whether there's going to be sort of recruitment externally so i guess um there's nothing going to be um announced um until i think it's around february next year so watch the space i guess but um knowing benny well i'm sure he'll be moving on to um, something super interesting next Cool. All right. So next story up, uh, Sarah. There's one here in uh, TechCrunch. Curve, the uh, kind of the app and prepaid card and, and company uh, that allow you to spend with one card and, and get the benefits from another card, uh, now lets you go back in time and switch the card you paid with retroactively. So I bought something yesterday, but now I can change it to from being my debit card to my credit card. Is that is that the deal here? Yeah. So as far as I understand it, it's um and and somebody will probably be able to. Explain the technical details better than I can but as far as I understand it it's basically even though the money goes out you know is, is shown on your debit card or credit card on your personal account within a couple of days it doesn't actually go anywhere for a couple of weeks so the point is on that platform curve still has time to to move it between your between whichever card it's used um I don't I don't know the specifics of how they do that there's probably some schemes out there who are going and issuers out there who are going <clears throat> excuse me you're doing what now I also don't know how interchange fees and things are going to work if you're switching from one card to the other which merchant processor has to deal with it there's a lot of technical stuff that I won't even pretend to understand but if you are Curve's ideal uh, target customer which is a small business this is brilliant because small businesses are renowned for having not enough money in the right places at the right time so if you're suffering from a, a cash flow problem and you can go oh wait let me move that from here to here then you're a lot more flexible i mean i, I believe it's targeted at small businesses and in, independent travelers that kind of 
kind of people because I tried to get one and they were like you're not independently and that would be the, that would be the, big, like, that would be the biggest pain point for a small business so my show on yeah. Sky News interviews small businesses and yeah. it's cash flow yeah. at the right moment at the right time exactly as you're saying so if they can take the pain out of that there's if a an huge two market week, I mean, in small business two weeks is a long time like if, if you're waiting for the you know to get paid or whatever um so I, I understand the logic of it I don't know how long they're going to get away with it because this is money out of the pockets of the issuer right yeah. so if if i'm sort of a credit card issuer and you are moving the payments to me fantastic but if i'm the bank that's issued you your debit card and you're switching the payments away but you've used you've you've incurred an expense to me like you've used my rails to make the transaction and for me to say yes you're good for that transaction but somebody else is, like i can see why people would be annoyed at this and and Curve have so far managed to get away with this, but I wonder if the schemes will or the banks will come in and start saying, hang on, that's not right. To, to be fair, this one like never has a headline first half been so exciting and been let down so dramatically <laughs> by the second half. I was like, travel? Yeah, as like a Back to the Future fan, I was all in for this one. And this may be finally the thing to get people into. Yeah, I should have brought this one up with great Scott in, Curve, let you go back into Indeed. <laughs> but uh, but uh, this, this, for me, though, actually fixes quite a major flaw with this type of aggregation card system to be honest with you, because actually, if I have a single card that rules them all, yay. But if I have to lick around with an app to figure out which one I'm actually going to be putting it to at the point where I'm actually making a transaction, then that's a pretty major UX problem. So I don't care what it goes on. I'm just carrying one card and I just figure out all that stuff later on. But then do you have to spend extra time doing admin, which small businesses say is one of their biggest pain points anyway? You could just set up rules, I think. Um, And and so there's something about like... You set a default. You always set a default from a Curve perspective. There's a default card that it goes from. I I actually think the the Curve proposition has been advanced dramatically. You know, the last six months, they really sort of went out with a, 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 you know, a a very clearly alpha product. Um, The user interfaces, everything that's kind of come forward is really sort of moving forward. So um, I think, you know, another functionality drop on this and we're sort of moving towards where they probably wanted to be to start with and i wonder if we'll see this popping up more and more around the world it's been very sort of european i think in its initial phases but uh anyway on that note we need to hear from our sponsors the financial times guides you through complex issues in divisive times don't settle for black and white when you need the full perspective turn to ft.com become a subscriber today search for ft subscription Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Cool, we are back. Thank you very much to our sponsors. And we cracking back on with the news david there's a story here uh that came from i don't know where it came from finextra this one finextra you see thank you uh that's that's why you're my co-host so on the ball um there's about poland's mbank and they are licensing a tech platform to third-party financial institutions that that's an interesting yeah uh, so, so mbank have really sort of been a 
put up as the um, you know poster boy for transformation for for quite a while now. You know, being able to make all of those changes, win all of the awards. You know, they've kind of won Finnovate, I think, four or five times now in various different geographies with various different bits of functionality that they've taken to market. So, you know, really sort of packaging up what they did and how they did it and taking that to market is is kind of like the holy grail for banks, really. So this idea of um, M-Box banking model um, being bought by uh, La Banque Postale. I'm not sure why that was a Spanish accent for a French bank, I'm going to be honest with you, but um, let's just go with that. Um, but actually, the, the idea that M-Bank are doing this makes complete sense. I'm not entirely sure, though, given, I guess, the story of M-Bank, given that they didn't fundamentally change all of their technology. So they're still running on a core banking engine that isn't sold anymore by Accenture, the Alnova platform, um, but actually sort of, you know, abstracted all of the data, abstracted all of the services and started to make compelling things, kind of workarounds to fixing all of the technology. But But I guess this workaround model is one that is gaining popularity. And it's not wrong. It's just probably not as good as doing it properly um and by properly i mean starting again in greenfield because you, you will get a lot of opportunities but that said mbank has won a lot of awards because they did extremely well with an old right. platform uh, and i guess there are a lot of banks in the same situation that have been trying to digitally transform mm-hmm. been trying to deliver new services and their existing systems and their existing spaghetti has been holding them back so for somebody to say hey we did it and we did it without replacing the core and here's the here's the answer in a box so it's yeah. going to be very compelling it's interesting because this was actually announced about 18 months ago that uh, M-Bank was partnering with Accenture to take it to market. So I wonder if actually this is just the, you know, the first of the things coming through the sales cycle with, um, you know, this French bank to, to actually say, you know, they've proven the market, somebody's going to buy it. There's a lot of companies in this category as well of already. There's uh, eBankit, there's Backbase, there's Soft Intelligence, there's, there's people been out there doing this kind of stuff but i think the fact that this is born out of having been implemented in a place is it gives it a good story yeah i'm sorry i was just going to say i think there's beyond that this you know this particular article mentions fedor there are there are plenty of um whether you want to call them neobanks or whatever that are selling their own white labeling their software selling them whatever you want to call it you know mostly coming out of germany actually now i think about it um but i guess maybe as you exactly as simon says the fact that they've done it themselves they've got a brand behind them and you know they have credibility credibility is exactly is exactly it maybe maybe that's gonna you know put them ahead in this game um i'm i'm not sure how it's gonna go I think um, M-Bank generally, I think M-Bank have done an amazing thing, you know, and um, when they sort of had uh, Mikhail Panovich at the helm, that I think those guys were sort of very much sort of leading the technological revolution, but actually sort of the cultural one as well. You know, the again, the story of how they did this is is actually as compelling as what they did. Um, but I haven't seen the sort of level of intensity out of the, the functionality recently, but um, maybe this is a sidestep into, you know, becoming a, you know, a, a, a B2B um, software capability as well as actually being a banking organization there's almost we did it so well that somebody else will buy this that pretty much is how amazon and aws started right well any extra revenue stream for any mainstream bank is going to be good sounds right? good yeah no <laughs> ceo is going to say no right indeed and maybe they spin it out one day i mean a lot of the core banking vendors started as a bank's platform that got spun out so there's definitely something here but this isn't the core this is the stuff you put around the core to make it better mm-hmm. um in in one box but 
I think for the larger organizations, they're still going to be stuck in that digital transformation, um, trying to take it, it's the smaller banks that only have 15 systems to worry about can do this quite easily, can take those 15 systems, wrap them up and do something nice and digital with an older core. If you're a bigger bank with 4,000, 7,000 systems, it's a lot, lot harder to do that. And actually, you're probably better off starting with a greenfield stack and a specific proposition, which we've seen a number of organizations start to do. And actually there, you know you can execute, you know you can get something to market and you can act and behave like a fintech. Uh, and this is the old GE model that we talk about a lot where you kind of got the legacy business and the new business that you grow. And over time, it sort of does this. Yeah. I mean, that's always going to be, that in fact is one of the key problems with, with core replacements is how, how do you do this? Like Because at some point you end up with this and then you've got to do that and if this makes which makes total sense for the people on the live stream i've just realized what i've just realized what i've done my point is that you've got to run things in parallel you've got to run things in parallel and you've got to ramp one up and turn one down and um i will no longer do hand gestures no (laughs) that was my fault i led you into that i realized it was entirely me and then i managed to blame you for it somehow i I think interesting that accenture's involved as well and they're doing a lot of these kind of partnerships at the moment i spoke with frank road the ceo of nomus recently interviewed him for a for, for TV show and and they've just partnered with them as well. So these kind of huge brands um, with with the great credibility, like we were saying, it will take this to the next level. I would have thought it's an interesting one. Like I, I guess the uh, you know for the banks and actually for people like Accenture, you know Accenture are looking at new revenue opportunities to monetize very very senior <laughs> relationships in all of these organisations. So well, you know this makes sense for those really them pouring, all the way through, you know? pouring big investment. Yeah. They've they, a big investment to Nomus. Create, sorry, creating a new role for themselves. All of these consultancies, they're facilitators now. They're like, you want fintechs? We've got fintechs. Mm. You want banks? We've got banks. And it kind of, it's, yeah, there's always, banking. yeah, it's always been the traditional role, but they're kind of like branching it out and calling it a fintech hub or accelerator or whatever. I, I think when Oliver Wyman and Santander did the fintech 2.0 white paper a couple of years ago, they nailed it. Fintech 1.0 was competition and now it's all about collaboration and Temenos have their open marketplace Accenture has the fintech lab now everybody has a lab and and getting the the connections between those two really figured out is 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 definitely something that's a big big focus for for large organizations that's so valuable to be the person to be connecting those kinds of people together yeah i'm i'm still like I'm still nervous about the whole collaboration thing, if I'm honest with you. Like, I think the most of the sort of dialogue around that is being mandated by the banks where they can dampen down some of the fear to a certain degree. You know, I know we've, we've talked before about the, you know, the story about Amazon being the, you know, just the distribution partner online for Barnes and Noble. And that sort of, you know, went rather badly, didn't it, in terms of the approach that, that those things could, could actually happen. So, you know, I, I see it only takes one of these people that actually partners with a, a bank to create digital products that then becomes the HSBC at some point down the line. So, you know, I, I think... Um, I think most of the, you know, the emphasis on that is by bankers rather than the, the, um, than the B2C players within fintech. The B2B players in fintech, absolutely, because actually you're, again, you're, you're not threatening the banks, you're threatening the, the likes of Accenture. And again, this, to, from Accenture's perspective, this becomes a defensive play mm-hmm. because you, you can defend yourselves from that attacked by b2b fintech players by actually partnering up with them before they're too big because then you've got the hey mate i can get you to talk to the ceo you know? I, I, and i commend this sort of work i think it's it's really positive um the, the thing i do worry a little bit about is uh supporting that with an older business model on the consulting side yeah. so i do worry about 
then targeting that on how many bodies and how much are they utilized i think there's that i'm a little nervous about but i do think that the the overall drive is a positive one great cool so i'm gonna move us on uh, there's a lovely story here in uh Finextra about danske bank developing a pocket money app and basically using the tool kids can see when their pocket money is paid into their account how their savings develop and while parents can use the mobile banking and to transfer money and keep an eye on the child's spending children can use a pocket money card to withdraw cash from an atm and use it in stores this is kind of digitizing pocket money and i'm this surprised awesome. no, i'm surprised no bank's done this before because you've got to think parents out there would love this I, I absolutely love this story it really you know it just touched me i think it's great i think it's brilliant it's like financial education learning from the age that you're getting pocket money which is we had a bit of a debate about this and at what age do you get pocket money i remember getting 50 cents australian aud um, when i was little but um working hard for it well my sisters and i there's three of us someone had to clean the bathroom someone had to do the vacuum cleaning and someone had to do the polishing and we lived in a big farmhouse so it's quite big um and i think i think the bathroom was the short straw to be honest but um i think this is brilliant i think this is this education piece and and learning from that early age just like i think that financial education should definitely be in curriculum and it isn't it certainly wasn't when i was in school um yeah i love this story i think it's fantastic and this is something that is really taking it to the next level i mean australian banks i remember you know Combank having you know certain um apps and you sort of got your what were the dolomites Commonwealth Bank Dolomites, and they had a really interesting, um, and now I look at it as an adult, but they all came into the schools and you got your Dolomite account and it was like a really trendy thing. And now I realize actually that was just marketing. <laughs> but at like five, nobody knew that and everyone had, and everyone has their Dolomite account and that is why Commonwealth Bank in Australia is the leading brand. It is because a lot of people don't change. You get them in as kids and... Sorry, sorry. Yeah, that I was, was the, say, exactly the point I was going to make. It's- so, the, I mean, this is a new concept. This has been around like five or ten years and there are, you know, Osper and, and uh, Go Henry and, and uh, Rocket is another one that, that do this. Um, but obviously there is a certain amount of, again, brand awareness to be raised. And if you're already a big brand, uh, big bank brand, it's, it's easy to get people on board. But it's kind of like taking it... So when I was a student, we used to get... Um, if you got an account with NatWest, you'd get a free rail card for three years whilst you were at uni. And it was exactly the same kind of idea. Get them on whilst they're kids, students. And you're unlikely and to you, change. Yeah, and you just yeah. never change as you and go on. The second on. you get your first job and that's where your salary goes, then you're in, right? Hooked until your next life stage. But I love this so that children can safely practice managing their finances with parents watching from the sidelines. It's a certain responsibility and it's taking responsibility at an earlier age. I know it's controversial. I no, love no, it. I, no, I like the idea of the responsibility at an early age. I do wonder if we're only going to get the kind of parents using this that would have taught their kids about money anyway. Do you see what I mean? Like, like I mean, like my my, my family were very good at educating us about money, and this is how much money you have, and, and okay, you want extra money to go to that gig? Well, then you have to do something to earn it, and you've got to save it, and and this the is the kind of thing of that it. I can see my, my family would have would have you know introduced us to. But I'm thinking that maybe the people who need the education the most is people out there who don't know what an interest but, rate. But is. maybe parents who aren't as educated in fine you know in finance maybe this is a great tool for them to almost have as well as the yeah. kids like we've got to look at where it is as well denmark where there is like everybody's financially literate and danske bank have a great history of introducing innovations and getting not just everyone in denmark but everybody in you know scandinavia to use it so 
The Danske Bank and the Nordics generally are a hotbed of uh, innovation for for this kind of stuff. And and what I love about this is it's a new proposition. And that customer acquisition point that you made makes complete sense, which is why it surprises me we haven't seen more of this from major banks before. Because to that point, you acquire somebody young and you're unlikely to lose them throughout the rest of their their, their career. Yeah, that was definitely my case. You know, it was like a clipboard from uh, Midland Bank with a lovely griffin on it actually coming to my school and giving it to me. And then I was a HSBC customer for forever, but I like I could definitely see me using this with my kids as they um, you know they get older. You know, it's a it's a great way of kind of increasing the controls from a parental perspective, but actually empowering the child as well. You know, like you don't have to keep coming back and asking for stuff. It actually gives them a a real sense of responsibility. And if the the well's dry, you you know. That's it. I mean, no more fidget spinners, right? You're done. <laughs> well, this, this is where I mean, this is where fintech I think really comes in, and if, if the last few years is it's obviously hugely prevalent. It's why we're doing this show. So, so you say, Simon, you know, it's interesting. We haven't seen it before, but maybe this is the moment in time where you will start to see things like this. It's an app. Right. So yeah. we've, we've actually seen uh, pretty major patents launched by Apple in this space. So these guys have, have kind of registered through uh, the ability to control uh, parental accounts through iTunes being put into prepaid cards. Um, so those guys have, have kind of and, and this is not a new thing. They did it back in I think it was 2013, 2014. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of thinking behind this and the, the ability to, for a parent to have. Uh, not only sort of access to the tap, but actually even down to the the merchants and the the locations and even the the times that you can actually access that money. You know, yeah. I think all of these controls are, you know, almost the things that when you've got a, a real time data source and you've got actually sort of uh, real time access to banking, you can actually do all of this stuff. So really, it's you know whether it be a, a kind of a you know a, an eight year old I'm trying to give some cash to, or whether it's an employee within a a, a banking organization. Equally, these things kind of apply to the SME market. So, well, I was just about to say, and I can't remember the name. Oh, Soldo, that was it. They started out with a family account, which is very similar to this. So, I'm I'm the head of the family, and you'll have cards that run off the account, and and you're eight years old. So, you know, one person's eight years old, so you can only shop in like Boots and Tesco, and you can spend ten pounds at a time. But you are the second adult in the house, you know, second person. So they have different limits in different shops, and that's how they started. And it kind of turned out to not work great for them so they have done exactly what David has suggested and pivoted to a business model so now I'm the CEO and it's exactly the same you know you're my my CFO so you get access to everything but you it's know like corporate cards yeah the difference but, but you're person card. two and you only get expenses for like a, a client entertainment and you're person three and you only get expenses for and kind people of like have been pushing those virtual cards for some time but I think the um, you know so there's Bankable and there's, there's a whole bunch of, I mean MasterCard have in control that's been around for about uh, 10 years or so but what's interesting is that whilst the proper position has existed uh, i love that a major bank has launched it and, and to me that's that's the key here is that yeah. major bank has launched it and let's watch the take-up of this one because yeah. i think a lot of us have been crowing about how useful this will be and and if it does come on and people do start to use it then hey we're right and if they don't then maybe maybe not so is that the second time in this podcast i had a good idea that somebody else has already done basically is that, yeah, that nothing uh, new right. under the sun you I'm, have lots of great i'm ideas. gonna go for the hat trick you know yeah, we've yeah, got some gonna, more stories you gotta do it you gotta do it um Sarah, there's a story here in the New York Times. Uh, women in tech speak frankly on the culture of harassment. So this this kind of, I mean, I I don't know if this story specifically does follow on to the stories that came out of Uber a few weeks ago, which we talked about on this podcast. Um, basic- the Miami memo, <laughs> Miami letter. I mean, I mean, basically, basically the story is is kind of what most women in tech already know, um, but isn't out there as obviously as it should be. But um, 
being a woman in Silicon Valley is really, really hard, like really hard. And this um, particular article is all about these stories. These these women are basically um, giving anecdotes of things that have actually happened to them. And they are horrific. What's really sad is that most women listening to this who work in tech will not find them that horrific. They'll find them something that's happened to them or their mate. You know, we, we've talked about it before. I was on this show with Liz and she explained an anecdote of hers and I was like, wow, that's awful, but actually it's not that awful. I've heard other people suffering similar things. Um, I mean, long story short, it's great women are actually finding the courage to speak up as far as I, as far as I can see. We need, we need people to speak up. What's sad is that at the bottom of this article, it says X number of women were too afraid to put their name to their stories. They wouldn't they wouldn't put their names on them. And I can see why they wouldn't. Um, or, you know, X number of women didn't want to actually tell us their stories because they were too afraid of the retribution. So something horrible and in this country illegal is happening to them yeah. and they're too scared to talk up. Now, that's that's really, really worrying. And, and you know, the what compounds it is it sounds like it's actually a cultural thing as well. Like it's actually part of the way these companies work well it, it seems like you say it seems very similar to the sort of uber story doesn't it that actually there's a, a fundamental culture problem in a company that's only existed for you know a very very short period of time and that that's terrible isn't it you know and some of the stories that are coming out of this that people are being sort of uh, you know propositioned for sex by an investor like and that it would sway the ability to actually get investment by uh, you know becoming uh, a little bit more engaged with uh, with that particular individual. So it's, yeah, it feels bizarre. There's an interesting sort of um, quotes in here from, is it Chris Sacker? Actually sort of making a bit of an apology in this sense that actually I, you know, I now understand and I'm, I personally contributed to this problem and I'm sorry. So, you know, there's, it feels like this is going to kind of run and run and run. And, you know, similar to a bunch of, um, you know, pretty horrific things that have been coming out of, uh, uh, you know, what's been happening in the 80s and 90s with uh, BBC presenters in the UK, then uh, it kind of feels like one of these things that, um, you know, the the sort of scab on this one is only probably just being sort of removed. And, and actually, it'll give a lot of people the, the the ability to actually start coming forward a little bit more forcibly. I think it's giving it a voice. Sorry, Sarah. I think it's giving it a voice. And I think, I mean, I feel really passionately about this. I work in television and in finance. And, you know, trust me, I think I probably don't need to say much more there. But I think a really good point you make, Sarah, is that, you know, there's people are speaking about it now. Not great that you can't put your name to it yet, but, you know, that is what it is. But people are speaking about it. So important to get it out there. We're talking about it on a global podcast. Again, gets it out there further. I mean, the thing is as well that I, you know, last time we talked about this on this show, there were men in the room who were like, that's not a real thing. That's never actually happened. Who just didn't know that it happened. Um, and they just had no no idea of it. Now, that's not their fault if they aren't seeing it or aren't hearing it mm. so you know as you but say then the if they see it and hear it and then they listen to it and perhaps you know anyone listening or you know wherever this story goes out surely people will hear it and you know people have a conscience most people have a conscience right unless you're a sociopath so you might be sitting there thinking okay well something i've done has been inappropriate and yeah. you know that's the story it gets i like that someone apologized fair enough put their hand up and apologized there was another incubator slash accelerator that shall remain nameless um but actually they did a good thing basically they said if they heard any story of harassment against an investor in an early stage company, that investor was put on a list and they were then not given the opportunity to invest again in that company. They were literally blacklisted off off their list. And I was like, but that's maybe talking up is one thing, but maybe we also need some action. I, I had, I had, I'll, I'll just say it. I had a really inappropriate um, occasion a couple of months ago and, and my CEO, Charles Green, sort of went back to my office, told him what happened. And he, we just straight out blacklisted this 
individual mm-hmm. from having anything to do with the business. There was just no comment, no questions asked. And I think it is having, you know, those, you know, they say like male champions of change and whatever. And I think you need them both on both sides. There's unconscious bias there. Um, but you definitely need people who are just willing to sort of back you and stand up against it. And just to feel that you can say it working in an environment where you feel that you can say something has happened. I was shocked. I cried about it because I thought, what have I done to make someone think that that's appropriate? And then, you know, I really thought about it. And, you know, it really, it's really upsetting. It's horrible, actually, but thought about it. And then when actually it wasn't me, and that was just sort of a, a victimless thing. And then I was thinking, what if that was someone so much younger than me that thought, oh, I have to do that to get ahead, which that's what kind of really pissed me off, to be honest, because I can kind of walk away. The, the, the great thing about shattering unconscious bias is you have to speak up in order to be able to do that. And I think you give people the opportunity to shatter their own unconscious bias when when you do that. And I commend the people who've spoken up here. I, I really do. And and there's there's a there's an interesting stat here that um, because most venture capitalists and entrepreneurs are men, there's data from PitchBook that says female entrepreneurs received 1.5 billion in funding last year versus the 58.2 billion for men. And this I want to link this to a thing that um, a study Barclays did a couple of years ago where they identified that uh, higher representation of women on boards and and senior executive level outperformed in terms of share price and in terms of revenues so that it's it's just bad business to not be good at diversity like it's factually incorrect to do that it it just makes no sense there was um i don't know if you're going to point for harvard business review uh, study from last week or two weeks ago which was exactly the same about vcs and about the question um, female uh, founders get asked different questions to male founders by vcs so it's not even as if uh, you're a VC and you must get, I don't know, 1,500 pitches through your door every day. And it's not like you have a, I would have thought, maybe this is, you know, but I would have thought you have a list of standard questions. You want to know this, 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 and this, and then if they're interesting, you'll take them on to the next stage. Yeah. But it turns out if the person or the name on the application is female, they get asked a different set well, of questions. Well, it almost needs to go back to that so, blank, blank CV yeah. where you take the name off, right? So you don't know about gender, race, sort of um, sexuality. Interestingly, in Australia, there's a woman, Jo Burston, who I'm quite close with, who um, has a program, Inspiring Rare Birds, and she has this huge um, sort of progress with government to get Female entrepreneurs, um, you know, out in society, it's a global, it's a mentorship program. And I think people like that giving a voice to, you know, there, there needs to be more female entrepreneurs just so there's diversity, really. And obviously there's different types of businesses. And if you get down to kind of the nitty gritty of the money side of things, like obviously from a monetary side of things, the, the world is made up of a whole bunch of people who will buy into different products yeah i think it's sad that we have to point out that financially it makes sense to do it it's just like yeah. common fucking sense if, people well, you you know, think like, that, but yeah <laughs> i mean if you have to i think i think it may have been gator who made the point just to, to name check her again he said you know somebody came out and 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 said you must sign this you know uh, basically uh, diversity charter i can't remember what it's called you know promise that you're going to treat pe- treat women well and she came out and said no just treat people like humans treat every person like people, a human yeah. and then you won't have a problem so uh, you know, you have to almost balance that because I have a lot of conversations with I write a women in leadership series and it's kind of that balancing act of going, you're just an awesome person. You're so credible. You know exactly what you're doing. Do we need to make a point of it that you're a woman? So I can see that side of things. And then I also and I still have like kind of confusion about this in my own mind, but I do think it's important. And it's, you still have to do it. I do think it's important for women to sort of step up to appear on podcasts like this and just, you know, push yourself out there just so that it is more diverse. I, I think the, the sort of continual worry that I have on this stuff is that when it was just like, um, you know, an old chap, you know, a kind of an old chap mm. who I'm like, 
dude, you just don't sort of live in this generation anymore. I tried to anymore. bring Prince Philip into this exactly. last time and it ended badly, yeah. but that's the perfect example of the and, UK. <laughs> and, and, I, and it was sort of like, like I don't, I don't in any way condone it, but I just get you don't live in this world anymore and you need to just go away. Yeah. It's like um, talking to your grandparents about certain social issues and you just yeah. think, oh, God. Not anymore. But, but, it, but it's yeah. not, right? It's yeah. not. And it's actually like things like the Uber examples where actually it's like, you know, 21 to 30-year-olds predominantly yeah. who are sort of, you know, creating this environment. Well, what's their leadership actually, showing them then? Well, so I, I just, just, thing, just yeah. the, the one that just before we move on from this, I'm aware we've, you know, we've been covering it for a while, but we had one, we had one story this week on on Business Insider, which was um, uh, somebody giving an explanation of this, um, that this that it's becoming younger, younger guys again. And they said, basically, what happens is a lot of the big tech companies will go into universities, and they will take guys who are really good at programming or computer development or whatever, and they'll bring them on board and they'll give them a signing bonus of $100,000. And they will be all that. And these are guys who typically at university, or at college, have not done so well with women. And then they get brought on board to these companies and all of a sudden they're getting loads of money and their, their ego inflates. And, and I mean, this was, this was the point that was made in the article was that that's how, that's how it's happening because you're taking these young men and you're making them think they're all that. And there are only like three women in the company anyway. So, well, there's you, similar, know. you know, similar sort of laterals into the, like the sports industry. You know, there's similar stuff that's been said. It's like reasonably poorly educated, very athletic young men giving loads of money suddenly go weird right so lots of money too young is is never a good thing i, I do have to move us on this is, yeah, is an extremely important topic but unfortunately we are up against it on time and we've got two more to to cover the story here david from business insider of course um about the fintech startup tide uh, receiving a 14 million dollar boost from the spotify backers creandum i believe it's called yeah there's a few people in this one to be honest with you they've, they've actually got uh so anthemus in here passion capital and a few others um who uh, one of which was one of the backers of, of Spotify, uh, but Tide raised fourteen million dollars, which is is great. To be honest with you, like SME banking for us is is kind of like one of the least tended to sort of industries. To be honest with you, most of the time it's been a kind of almost a poorer version of what you get for retail, but for some reason you've got to pay for it, which is kind of weird. Especially when you look at the British uh, statistics that say that most people who are small businesses end up with a personal account anyway, because getting a business account is far too hard and far too expensive and but doesn't actually get give them what they need. No, exactly. Use a credit card. It, points. It, pretty much, yeah. So so the idea that they've got 40 million to sort of build on what they've, they've done and actually sort of really sort of uh, create a, a platform that they can actually build things out on... Um, it feels when when I sort of saw the the sort of passion capital investment on this one and the uh, particularly in the early days of this one, it felt like it was sort of Monzo for mm-hmm. for business. Um, and I don't think necessarily the the first sort of couple of iterations of the functionality has really sort of lived up to that type of hype. Um, but I think having uh, you know raised fourteen million, these guys have got a really good uh, opportunity. And you know, I know uh, George has been on the the show a couple of times before, but he's got pretty big aspirations for where this will go. So um, well done, you guys. Congratulations on the raise and uh, looking forward to seeing what you do with the money. And I think this says that um, VCs in the mainstream, outside of the VCs that have just been investing in fintech, really spot that small business opportunity because their portfolio companies are experiencing those business bank account problems on a, on a regular basis. And also, therefore, that the diversity of investor is kind of increasing. So I know Creandum have done some other things in fintech before, but uh, there is definitely something to that. One, one of the interesting things that... that George actually says in this space is that um, so unlike the um, other banking startups like Monzo, they have no intention 
intention of actually trying to get a full banking license. So, <laughs> which, which is interesting. So yeah, George actually goes on to say, so having a full license would actually be bad for our members. Uh, not, a, not having a full license, we can take risks with our members' money, which is an interesting statement to make um, from a marketing perspective. I, I, you know, I think there's probably some nuances in actually what he probably meant by that rather than what it sounds like. Um, but it's an interesting one that he's kind of backing into a uh, Barclays partnership for uh, handling all of the transactions. It's, it's kind of it's there, there are two schools of thoughts when you come to neobanking, right? There's we're going to build it from the ground up. It's all going to be ours. And we're going to try and avoid any kind of third party supplier issues, which may or may not have happened today to an awful lot of British neobanks. Um, the other the other argument is, you know, sorry, is, is that, you know, the reason you do it is to avoid that. So one side is to go you build it from the ground up. You have your own license. It's all your technology stack and you go for it. But that's expensive and time consuming and hard. Or you partner with somebody else who's already got the license and you do the really good functionality on the front end. And, you know, certainly with small businesses, it's not just fintechs you're waking up. Actually, we're seeing some of the high street banks go, oh, underserved market. Oh, technology can help us serve them. Mm-hmm. So I think this market's going to be really interesting, you know, whether it's loans, whether it's banking, whether it's, you know. A massively underserved yeah. and dissatisfied market. And globally, globally. as well. Globally. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, is what, this is not a UK thing. This no, is not a huge. London thing. I know we're, we're a very sort of UK-centric podcast or have been, but I think to, to your point, there's, <laughs> the, there's, yeah, exactly. To your point, good day indeed. Uh, there's definitely uh, a we, demand. We talk about Australia a lot. You guys don't like Apple Pay, right? <laughs> we talked about the, the dollar do. I remember that we conversation. Did, we did. Yeah. Uh, the did you no. Speaking <laughs> of uh, fun stories, we've got one here from Medium. Uh, about Bag Snatchers, Monzo, and a Night of Adventure. This Love is this, one this is a story by um, Tristan Watson, who's the CEO of um, Ignite Axel, who support early stage tech companies in the UK. Um, and he goes on to tell a story about being uh, at a pub, and he's with some friends, and uh, lists all the things, all the gear that's in his bag. Um, and then somebody at the table cracks a joke. Everyone laughs, uh, joining the conversation. Then he goes back to his chat and he checks on his bag, and then he goes, "Wait, it's gone." Where the fuck is my bag? Uh, and we've all had that feeling. And then usually you find your bag or your phone and everything's okay. D- did you see the picture of the guy's bag, though? What he actually had in it was like, no wonder he freaked out. He had like an SLR in there and like a thousand phones and a laptop. A MacBook, and like an yeah, iPad like, Pro. No like wonder he GoPro. freaked out. You know? Yeah, no, you would freak out. This is so well written. Everyone just needs to read this story. I think. It really <laughs> does. <it> yeah, yeah. <laughs> bag Snatchers, Monzo and a Night of Adventure in London. Definitely look it up. Because he's, he has a great now narrative throughout it and basically the, the upshot of this is um he tried find my iphone but his phone was offline the thieves had thought of that he tried a whole bunch of stuff but then somebody was silly enough to spend using the monzo card and of course because monzo tells you exactly where a transaction happened and exactly when it happened they were able to trace him and i believe it all ended quite well so the the, the one this is a this is brilliantly written and it's a fantastic narrative the one thing that terrifies me slightly is that he went after the guys yes. who took his bag agreed and i read an article fairly similar to this in a mainstream uh, newspaper last weekend and they were basically like the police were basically like please don't do that please don't follow the people who stole in your bag um, I, I was worried for him when I was reading this it was like I, then I was approaching three youths and was like, oh, okay, well he wrote the story yeah. so he lived to tell the exactly, tale that's very true. but I mean yeah I think we all probably thought of that so amazing that and it, all it comes down to is the sort of customer centric nature of what Monzo do and it's it, you know they cared about him and he and, and everybody talks about how Monzo Monzo is just a feature or it's it's you know it's a prepaid card and it's like well why would I do a prepaid card and that's a sign to me that somebody hasn't got it oh goodness yeah you see them you see them everywhere I was talking about this the other day at work we see them on the bus in Croydon 
Like you see them in the supermarket in Cambridge. Like you wouldn't see them everywhere if people didn't have a need to use yeah, them. Whoever came up with the color of that card was oh. probably a smart chap, wasn't Genius. it? Hot coral, yeah. I believe it's, yeah. it's bright, isn't it? It's really bright and it's iconic. Like you know what it is when you see it. Even I know what it is when I see it and it, I've only seen a few. It's yeah. an interesting one because I, I like... The version of this story when a colleague of mine, when I was working at Lloyd's Banking Group, had their laptop stole, ended with their laptop being stolen. Like, there was no blog, do you know what I mean? It was just a, suddenly it was a security problem because a bank laptop had been stolen. But now there's like a whole thing with it. It's amazing. Way to go, Tristan. So um, that wraps up another news show. But before we wrap up, where can we find out more about Chloe? Oh, okay. Um, you can find out more about me, www.rfigroup.com, which is where I'm the Global Media Director. Also have a Vimeo channel, Sky News Business RFI TV, which is where my show Business Success is, where I talk to entrepreneurs and business owners about what it takes to start an amazing company. It's pretty fun. I'd most highly recommend following Chloe on Instagram, to be honest with you, because it's like it's a mixture of behind the scenes stuff of Sky News and then just feeling sort of very envious about beaches in Sydney. Yeah, it's a bit, I think it's beaches, babies, yoga and behind the behind the puppies, sort of screens puppies and kittens puppies and- on Sky News. So that's Chloe Allison, two L's, James. Cool. And Sarah, where can people find out more? Oh, I'm nowhere near that exciting. Um, I write for BI Intelligence and I can be found on Twitter, which is, um, I suppose everybody can these days, but that's, well, except, except, except for Chloe. Sorry. Um, so I'm at Sarah Kashansky on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, uh, to our listeners and to the people watching live, if you like what you've heard this week, please do subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps. And it lets us know that you like what we're doing. Thank you very much for listening. 